All right, uh, let's start on book three of The Fairy Queen. Uh, we're looking at uh, book three, Canto six today. Uh, book three of The Fairy Queen focuses on Britomart, who is the knight of chastity. Uh, she's the only female knight among the uh, the major characters in the in the story. And uh, a couple of things to to say before we get into the uh, selections in Canto Six. First of all, the idea of chastity today that's used almost as a synonym with virginity, but that's not the way that the Renaissance thought about it. Chastity was not a physical condition; it was a moral condition, and. Uh, you could be a married woman and have children and still be considered chaste uh, because chastity means having a proper romantic love it's it's the uh, uh, so it's a, it's a virtue not a physical state and Britomart is the allegorical representation of that virtue in the fairy queen uh, when the Book three starts off. We have uh, Britomart. The first thing that she does is she meets uh, Sir Gion, the Knight of Temperance from book two, and she defeats him in uh, in uh, a joust. And uh, kind of allegorically, that's showing, first of all, that Spencer considers chastity to be uh, a more powerful or important virtue, perhaps, than temperance. And also the idea that love that chastity uh, and uh, temperance are not completely compatible, maybe. So there are a lot of things like that that go on. But we find out the the, the story of Britomart is that she saw in a magic mirror the image of uh, a man and fell in love with him. And Merlin, who was the owner of the magic mirror, told her that the man that she saw was Artigal. And so she's going on a quest to find her one true love, Artigal. Uh, and she has a series of adventures. She meets the, the Knight of, uh, of Temperance. She meets Red Cross Knight. Uh, there are several other stories that are going on uh, with Sir Arthur's, uh, Prince Arthur's page, um, all, all kinds of things. But here in the in the middle of the of book three in Canto six, we get the story of the birth of the twins, uh, Belphoebe and Amoret. Uh, and how they were born and how they were each adopted by one of the uh, uh, goddesses. Now, it may strike you as a bit odd that in this very Christian allegory, there are so many uh, pagan uh, ancient Roman god references. But that is something that is very central to an understanding of the Renaissance. Uh, the Renaissance literally means rebirth, and that was not a name they, that they gave themselves. That was a name that they were called later on in the 19th century. Uh, but the idea was, and this was an idea at the time, that there was a rebirth of classical learning. So they were kind of rediscovering and giving a, a new importance to the, the texts of the uh, ancient Roman and Greek world. 
mostly the ancient Roman. The, the, the Renaissance, the ancient world for the people in the Renaissance was mainly the, the Roman world. They, they knew Latin. They had some of the Greek texts, but they weren't as widely available. Um, well, that's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of rich material there in, in literature and philosophy and science and all kinds of things. But it brings up a problem for a fundamentally Christian society because the values and ideals of ancient Rome are not completely compatible with the values and ideals of Christianity, uh, certainly not of medieval Christianity. Uh, and so this was a, a kind of a, a deep intellectual problem for the Renaissance because they venerated the ancient Roman world and yet they you know, were smart enough to see that it wasn't completely compatible um, with their Christian values. Uh, the, the way, you know, just painting in a very broad brush here, uh, the way that the, the Middle Ages tended to deal with that was to just uh, either ignore the, uh, the classical learning or read it all as kind of just a, uh, an allegory for something Christian. Uh, the Renaissance didn't do that. They took the uh, the classical world more on its own terms, but they still wanted to reconcile these two traditions. And so th you can see this in the Fairy Queen, and it, it, it is an odd kind of marriage. These don't really quite fit together, and we'll see some places here where the, the, the story that... Uh, Spencer is trying to tell uh, has some oddly unchristian notes in it, uh, but the the people in the Renaissance wanted to reconcile these two things, and that, it, it, in some ways, that's the central intellectual project of the Renaissance: is to reconcile the, the Christian and classical traditions. Uh, we'll see this very strongly also when we get to Milton. Uh, but all right, so let's let's get to Canto Six of the Fairy Queen. So the first part of Canto Six is talking about the birth of Belphoebe and Amoret. Uh, it says in stanza three that uh, her birth, Belphoebe's birth, was of the womb of morning dew, and her conception of the joyous prime, and all her whole creation did her show pure and unspotted from all loathly crime that is ingenerate in fleshly slime. So was this virgin born, so was she bred. She, so was she trained up from time to time in all chaste virtue and true bounty head, till, uh, till to her due perfection she was ripened. So Belphoebe is, and all of the different strands of the story, and the, it's a very complicated, multifaceted story in book three, much more so than the previous two books of the Fairy Queen, are, are variations on the theme of chastity. And Belphoebe and Amoret fit that as well, uh, as, as we'll see. But notice it says they're they're free of uh, they're pure and unspotted. Uh, there's no um, uh, corruption in their birth, and their mother is Chrysogony. Uh, she bore Belphoebe. She bore in like case fair Amoretta in the second place. These two were twins, and twinkst them too did share the heritage of all celestial grace. 
So here it is. So she's setting up. These are the two uh, women and their important characters in book uh, book three. And we find out that these um, two twins have a kind of a a, a virgin birth. That's why they were... uh, born without any uh, any they were pure and unspotted no uh, loathly crime uh, it says stanza six but wondrously they were begot and bred through influence of the heaven's fruitful ray as it in antique books is mentioned it was upon a summer's shiny day when titan fair his beams did display in a fresh fountain far from all men's view she bathed her breasts in boiling heat to lay. She bathed with roses red and violets blue, and all the sweetest flowers that in the forest grew. Till faint, through irksome weariness adown, upon the grassy ground herself she laid to sleep. The whiles, a gentle slumbering swoon, upon her fell, all naked bare displayed. The sunbeams bright upon her body played being through through former bathing mollified and pierced into her womb where they embayed with so sweet sense the secret power and secret power unspied that in her pregnant flesh they shortly fructified so what happens is that Chrysogony goes out and she bathes in this crystal stream and uh, is lying out there in the sun and the, the sun itself uh, it impregnates her. So while she's asleep, uh, this this happens. Uh, and of course, she doesn't know what's happening. It says in stanza nine, yet wist she not thereof, but sore affright, wondered to see her belly so upblown, which still increased till she her term had full out gone. So she's, you know, nine months pregnant here and knows she hasn't slept with anyone and is, you know, so what she does is she goes out into the wilderness. She fled into the wilderness of space till that unwieldy burden she had reared and shunned dishonor, which as death she feared, where weary of long travel down to rest, herself she set and comfortably cheered there a sad cloud of sleep her overcast, and sees it every sense with sorrow sore oppressed. So just as she falls asleep and is impregnated, she's going to fall asleep and give birth. And then we get the fact that Venus, the, the goddess of love, is out looking for her little son, the winged god of love. And it says all these different places that she's gone to look for him. You know, stanza 13, first she him sought in court, where he most used with armed haunt, but there she found him not, but many there she found which sore accused his falsehood, and with a foul infamous blot his cruel deeds and wicked wiles did spot. So he's not in the court, uh, but he has been there, he's been causing mischief, uh, then she goes to the cities, uh, stanza 14, and everyone did ask, did he him see? And every one her answered that too late he had him seen and felt the cruelty of his sharp darts and what and what artillery. Um, so, well, I didn't see him coming, but he his arrows got me in the cities. And she goes into the countries, the rural cottages inquired, where also many plaints to her were brought. 
So if they're complaining, well, Cupid's been here too. He's been causing trouble for us too. And she, she looked everywhere else. She looked in the court. She looked in the city. She looked in the country. So now she's just going out into the savage woods, into the, the wilderness, to see if she can find him there. Uh, stanza 16, in which full many lovely nymphs abide, amongst whom might be that he did closely lie, or that the love of some of them him tied. For thy she thither cast her course to apply to search the secret haunts of Diane's company. Now, Diana is the uh, the goddess, as often in, in Greek and Roman mythology, of several things. Uh, she's the goddess of the moon, the sister of Apollo. But here she's seen as the, both the goddess of the, the hunt. She uses a bow and arrow to, to hunt. And also... She's the virgin goddess. So she's very often contrasted with Venus. Venus is the goddess of love and is very amorous. Diana is the virgin goddess and is very, uh, very chaste. Um, so she's going to go see, well, maybe Cupid's gotten into, uh, into mischief, making the nymphs who follow Diana fall in love. And Venus discovers uh, that Diana is bathing, and Diana and Diana is is you know embarrassed to have been uh, uh, caught by surprise like this, and then we get the dialogue between them. Look at stanza twenty two. This is Venus. As you in woods and wanton wilderness, your glory set to chase the savage beasts. So my delight. And all is all in joyfulness, in beds, in bowers, in banquets, and in feasts. And ill becomes you, with your lofty crest, to scorn the joy that Jove is glad to seek. We both are bound to follow heaven's behests, and tend our charges with obeisance meek. Spare, gentle sister, with reproach my pain to eke. Uh, so she's pointing out, well, you know, you have your realm and I have mine. You like to go out hunting in the forest. I like, you know, the, the I'm the party girl. I'm always in the in beds and bowers and feasts. Uh, and, you know, that's, uh, uh, don't disparage me because of that. And Diana replies to her uh, in stanza 24, Go, dame, go seek your boy, where you him lately left in Mars his bed. He comes not here. We scorn his foolish joy, nor lend we leisure to his idle toy. But if I catch him in this company, by Stygian lake I vow, whose sad annoy the gods do dread, he dearly shall abide. I'll clip his wanton wings that he no more shall fly. And say, look, we don't, we don't, we we're we're uh, respectable women here. We don't have Cupid, and if he comes around here, we'll clip his wings. Um, so, but Venus is still, you know, kind of looking around in, in the forest, and we get back to Chrysogony in uh, stanza twenty six. Fair Chrysogony in slumber, uh, slumbery trance, will air, who in her sleep, a wondrous thing to say, unwares had borne two babes, as fair as springing day. Unware she them conceived, unwares she bore. She bore withouten pain, that she conceived withouten pleasure. So, the idea is she, there was no sexual pleasure in the conception of these children, and so there are no labor pains in giving birth to them. Uh, that was often... 
an idea that was linked in the in the Renaissance that uh, the, the 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 sexual pleasure uh, was kind of balanced out by the the pain of childbirth, um, and Venus and uh, Diana see these these twin girls that are there, and they decide to take them. Stanza twenty eight. Uh, up they them took, each one a babe up took, and with them carried to be fostered. Dame Phoebe to a nymph her babe betook, to be upbrought in perfect maidenhead. Now, Phoebe is another name for Diana. Uh, so, and of herself, her name Belphoebe read. So, Belphoebe is uh, is kind of. You know her. It's kind of like calling her Junior. Uh, this is this little girl, Belle Phoebe. Said, but Venus, hers thence far away conveyed to be upbrought in goodly womanhead, and in her little uh, loves, and in her little love stead, which was strayed, her Amaretta called to comfort her dismayed. So Amaretta, meaning little, that's Italian for little love, uh, she's kind of a substitute for the Cupid, the, the child that she's searching for. Um, so each of these are, are taken up by the corresponding goddess, the goddess of love, uh, the goddess of virginity, and they're going to be raised up in that environment, the, these twins, and we'll see the different, uh, uh, and if, you, if you read all the fairy queen, you'll see the different fates that they come to. Uh, so these these uh, human uh, girls will become kind of representatives of these the two kind of lifestyles of these two goddesses. And while uh, Diana is taking Belphoebe to grow up in the woods and kind of be a tomboy there with the other nymphs, uh, Venus is taking Amore- Amoretta to the Garden of Adonis. So this is the uh, the, the rest of uh, Canto Six is focusing on this description of the Garden of Adonis, and it's a, a kind of allegorical, symbolic place that is set in contrast with the Bower of Bliss that we saw at the end of, of Book Two in the Fairy Queen, and it's described uh, stanza thirty. As it says, there is the first seminary of all things that are born to live and die according to their kinds. Uh, so this is the, the the origin, as it says, the, the, the seminary, the seedbed of life, um, but of mortal life, life that will live and die. And as always in these kind of allegorical places, the descriptions are very heavily weighted with meaning. It has two walls on either side, the one of iron, the other of bright gold. So there, there are you know, two sides of the garden. There's the iron gate and the golden gate. Uh, the iron gate is death. The golden gate is birth, as we'll see. Um, now, if you remember, the... Bower Bliss had walls too, but they were just for show. They were they were thin. They didn't really weren't effective walls. These are real walls made of real metal uh, that have a, a, a purpose to them. They're not just uh, just for show. And 
it says that old genius, the porter of them was. Now, if you remember, there was a figure called genius who was in the Bower of Bliss, but he was almost literally just a figurehead, and they said explicitly, this is not the real genius. Well, here is the real genius, the, the, uh, the genesis. Uh, is kind of a pun there. And he's the one, he let us in, this is stanza 32, he let us out to wind all that to come into the world desire. A thousand thousand naked babes attend about him day and night, which do require that he, with fleshly weeds, would them attire, such as him list, such as eternal fate ordained hath, he clothes them with sinful mire, and sendeth forth to live in mortal state, till they again return back by the hinder gate." So the idea is that there are all of these, these these naked babes are souls, and genius is the one who will clothe these souls in physical bodies, uh, sinful mire, that's the earth, uh, and sends them out into the world, and then they will return back to the Garden of Adonis when they die. So this is this is the circle of life here, right? Look at stanza thirty three. After that they again returned hence, they in that garden planted be again, and grow afresh, as they had never seen fleshly corruption, nor mortal pain. Some thousand years so do they there remain, and then of them are clad with other hue, or sent into the changeful world again, till thither they return where first they grew. So they go out into the world, they come when they die, they come back into the garden, they, they stay there, they're kind of replanted, they, the souls grow up, and then they're sent back out into the world again. It's, it's, there's a kind of an idea of reincarnation going on here. Um, but it says, you know, still there's biblical ideas here too. It says that uh, the Almighty Lord that bade them to increase and multiply, you know, do they need with... Uh, water of the ford or the clouds to moisten their roots dry for in themselves eternal moisture they imply so these are, are kind of self-sustaining increase and multiply that's right out of genesis you know be fruitful and multiply and all of these shapes and not all of the different uh, uh, kinds of life that come out of the uh, the garden of adonis now, think about this in contrast with the Bower of Bliss, because this is about life. This is productive. This is essential to living. So it's uh, it, it's love, but love as a means of procreation. In the Bower of Bliss, sex is all about seduction. Uh, there, there's no... Uh, it, it's not essential. It, again, it's all a show. It's all a kind of a simulation. This is the real thing. This is the, the, the heart of the matter. And look in uh, stanza 36. Uh, For in the wide womb of the world there lies in hateful darkness and in deep horror an eternal, a huge eternal chaos which supplies the substance of nature's fruitful progenies. All right, so this is, uh, again, a, a, theolo- a Christian theological idea, which also intersects with the classical ideas that the world is created out of chaos. So chaos is seen as kind of this formless mass that can be formed into 
things. It says, all things, things from thence do their first being fetch and borrow matter whereof they are made, which when as form and feature is doth catch, become as a body, and doth then invade the state of life out of the grisly shade. That substance is a turn, and bideth so. Now, when the, the, when the life decays, and form does fade, doth it consume, and into nothing go, but change it is, and often altered to and fro. The substance is not changed, nor altered, but the only form and outward fashion. So here's the idea that all of these living things have a, a there's a difference between the, the substance and the form. So they may take different forms, and those forms might be mortal. They, they will be mortal. They'll, they'll uh, be born and grow and live and die. But the substance is not destroyed. The substance comes back to the Garden of Adonis and is kind of re-given a new form and goes out into the world again. And we learn in stanza 39 that the great enemy to it and to all the rest that in the Garden of Adonis springs is wicked time, who with his scythe addressed doth mow the flowering herbs and goodly things and all their glory to the ground down flings where they do wither and are foully marred. So here's time with his scythe. like This is like the figure of death, you know, with the, the great scythe and comes and mows them down. That's the enemy to these things. That's why they're not, uh, it, it's not perfect. Uh, this all things decay in time and to their end do draw. It uh, stands 41. But were it not that time their troubler is, all that in this delightful garden grows should happy be and have immortal bliss. For here all pleasure and all pleasure flows, all plenty and all pleasure flows, and sweet love gentle fits amongst them throws without fell rancor or fond jealousy. Frankly, each paramour his lemon knows, each bird his mate, nay, any does inveigh their goodly merriment and gay felicity. Now, think about the difference again here between the Garden of Adonis and the Bower of Bliss. Here there is, I mean, there's obviously sex going on here. Uh, each, uh, frankly, each paramour, his lemon, his lover, his sweetheart knows. Um, but there's no, it's not in, envy or jealousy or rancor. It, it's, it's all pleasant. It's pleasurable. It's full of plenty. Um, it says there is continual spring and harvest there. Uh, now, again, if you remember in the Bower of Bliss, the it was a temperate but kind of artificially, kind of uh, unsettlingly perfect climate all the time that never changed. Here it says it's both continual spring and continual harvest. So it's both autumn and spring there simultaneously all the time which is, of course, kind of impossible. But it it's, sets up a difference between this, which is about process and change and movement, and the Bower of Bliss, which is all kind of static and sterile and uh, unproductive. 
And it, in stanza 44, it begins describing the center of the garden. It says, And in the thickest covert of that shade, there was a pleasant arbor, not by art, but of the tree's own inclination made, which knitting their rank branches part to part, with wanton ivy uh, twine in, in trailed athwart, the, and eglantine and cap capafoil among, fashioned above within their inmost part, that neither Phoebus beam could through them throng, nor Aeolus sharp blast could wake them any wrong, work them any wrong. All right. Now, again, this is set up in distinction with the Bower of Bliss, which is all about artifice and artificiality. There's this arbor here, and it's set up where the sun doesn't shine in, the wind can't get in, but it wasn't artful. It's just, it's purely natural, by the tree's own inclination made. Um, and it's here that we find Adonis in stanza 46. There want fair Venus often to enjoy her dear Adonis' joyous company, and reap sweet pleasure of the wanton boy. There yet, some say, in secret he doth lie, lapid in flowers and prettiest spicery, by her hid from the world and from the skill of Stygian gods which do her love inveigh. But she herself, whenever that she will, possesseth him, and of his sweetness takes her fill. Now the the myth of Adonis is that, in fact, Shakespeare wrote a, a, a long narrative poem called Venus and Adonis, which is about this very story, um, that Adonis was a, a beautiful young man who Venus took a fancy to, and he resisted her, uh, and he was out on the hunt and got killed by a wild boar, and she turned him into a flower to preserve his, his beauty. Um but this is taking it in a different way. So we have the uh, the mortal Adonis, and she's hidden him here in the garden of Adonis to keep him away from the underworld, so he doesn't go to the Stygian gods, the gods of the underworld. And sooth, it seems, they say, they say this is true, for he may not forever die and ever buried be in baleful night, where all things are forgot. All be he subject to mortality, yet is etern in mutability, and by succession made perpetual, transformed oft, and changed, changed diversely. For him the father of all forms they call. Therefore needs mought he live, that living gives to all. So he is immortal, but he's immortal in a very particular way. He is eternal in mutability. He's always in process and change. Uh, he's kind of, uh, again, in the same way that the, the souls come into the Garden of Adonis and change their forms. Well, he does too. He's, he's mutable. Um, there now he liveth in eternal bliss, joying his goddess, and of her enjoyed. Uh, no feareth he henceforth that foe of his, which with his cruel tusks him deadly cloyed. This is the, the wild boar who killed him in, in, the, in the myth. For that wild boar, 
the which he once annoyed, she firmly hath imprisoned for I that her sweet love his malice might avoid in a strong rocky cave, which is, they say, hewn underneath that mount that none him loosen may. So she's she's imprisoned the boar in a cave under the mountain where he can't get, he can't hurt uh, Adonis, and we find out that uh, Cupid comes by here too. Uh, Stanza forty nine that uh, Adonis with the winged boy sporting himself in safe felicity, who when he hath with spoils and cruelty ransacked the world and in the woeful hearts of many wretches set his triumphs high thither resorts and laying his sad darts aside with fair Adonis plays his wanton parts so a, a Cupid who we read you know causes havoc and everything but he when he's done doing that, he comes to the Garden of Adonis in this this central portion, and he is uh, hangs out with Adonis as well. And his true love, fair Psyche, with him plays. Now, this is another classical myth. Uh, Psyche was a mortal woman who uh, fell in love with with Cupid, didn't realize who it was, and uh, he he told her that uh, she should never see his face. And of course, he did look at her. Uh, she did look at his face and uh, had to uh, undergo these punishments from Venus until she finally earned the right to be uh, be Cupid's uh, beloved. Um, this, and his true love, fair Psyche, with him plays. Fair Psyche, to him lately reconciled, after long troubles and unmeet upbraids with which his mother Venus her reviled, and eke himself her cruelly exiled. But now, in steadfast love and happy state, she with him lives, and hath him born a child. Pleasure, that doth both gods and men a great. Pleasure, the daughter of Cupid and of Psyche late. So this is, uh, and a lot of the whole Garden of Adonis, he, he's borrowing elements from mythology and characters from mythology, but the whole Garden of Adonis is Spencer's own invention. And so the daughter of Cupid and Psyche is pleasure. And again, this is a very different kind of pleasure than we got in the Bower of Bliss. Uh, and think about what the difference is. Uh, Cupid and Psyche really love each other. Uh, they they have this great romantic story about how you know the the the, the links they went to 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 be with each other. Um, the uh, Acrasia does not love Verdant. She's just sucking his spirits out of his eyes. There's no love story there. There's just exploitation. Uh, so it's very, very different. And the pleasure that they get here is a, a very different kind than the mere physical pleasure that they uh, experience in the Bower of Bliss. It says, Hither great Venus brought this infant fair. Uh, now we're back to Amaretta the younger daughter of Chrysogony, and unto Psyche, with great trust and care, committed her, you fostered to be, and trained it up in true fem femininity, who no less carefully her tendered than her own daughter Pleasure, to whom she made her companion, and her lessoned in all the lore of love and goodly womanhood. So, 
Amaretta, Amaret, is going to be raised, uh, her foster mother is basically Psyche, who is going to raise her along with her own daughter, Pleasure. Uh, so this is a very different kind of upbringing, you can imagine, than Belphoebe will get out in the woods with uh, uh, with Diana. Uh, but they're both kind of images of proper uh, of uh, moral womanhood and chastity in different ways. And, and we can see that um, Amaret is uh, uh, has been brought up well uh, because although she is. Uh, wooed by many, she only has one true love, uh, stanza 53, but she to none of them her love did cast, save to the noble knight Sir Scudamore, to whom her loving heart she linked fast in faithful love to abide forevermore, and for his dearest sake endured sore, sore trouble of a heinous enemy, who her would forced have to have forlore her former love and steadfast loyalty, as you may elsewhere read that rueful history. In fact, we're going to read part of that rueful history for next time. Um, the last section we're going to read from the, the Fairy Queen is uh, Canto 12 of Book 3. And this is where... Uh, Britomart, the Knight of Chastity, who we didn't really see at all in, in, in Canto 6, but we'll see her quite a lot in Canto 12, is going to rescue Amaret from the sorcerer Busyrain. Now, Scudamore, her, uh, her, the one who loves her, is not able to get into Busyrain's castle, but, Am- but uh, Britomart is, and she sees there the, um, the mask of Cupid, which is another kind of allegorical uh, image here. And think about what it represents. What's the kind of vision of love that it represents? And how is it different from the kind of visions of love we've seen in the Bower of Bliss or in the Garden of Adonis? And think about what symbolically uh, happens, what is Busy Rain doing to Amaret? And how does uh, Bittermart rescue her? Um one thing I'll, I'll point out, uh, two of the main couples in The Fairy Queen, in Book Three of The Fairy Queen, we have Britomart, the Knight of Chastity, and the man she's looking for, Artigal. And then we have the, her, Britomart goes and rescues uh, Amaret for her beloved Scudamore. Think about how those names relate to each other. Uh, Britomart, last syllable, art. Artigal, first syllable, art. Britomart, art. Britomartigal. Britomart, artigal. Scudamore, the last two syllables, amor, or the first two syllables of amoret. Scudamoret. So even in their names, they they belong together. They fit together uh, in 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 a perfect way. Uh, it's just one of the many little clever symbolic things that Spencer does in the Fairy Queen. Uh, so for for next time, be looking at Britomart as a symbol of chastity. What does she do? How does she? Uh, uh, conquer the sorcerer busy reign and you might think about how her uh, victories are is different 
uh, and her strategies are different from, say, Sir Guyon or the Red Cross Knight. Uh, we'll be looking at that for next time, and that'll be our last little section from Spencer. Uh, so, uh, if you have questions about that or other things we've read, the email address is drmarkwomack at gmail.com. I thank you again for your attention, and I will talk to you next time.